neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania, and I study anxiety and addiction, the circuitry underlying anxiety and addiction, and I'm on the Penn Science Policy Group's board along with Leanna Vacari, and I'm also a PhD student here at Penn, and I'm studying chemical engineering, in particular, what bacteria do at oil-water interfaces like you might find in an oil spill. And welcome to the first podcast episode from our group. Um, we don't know exactly what shape this podcast is going to take, um, but we figured we'd just get started. And the overall goal of the Penn Science Policy Group is to bring scientists and constituents closer to the regulatory bodies that sculpt how science, how biomedical science and other, ty- and other sciences are regulated and funded in this country. Science uh, and research are basically among the last truly bipartisan priorities. Um, this past election has been probably one of the most contentious in history. <laughs> and, um, but it's been encouraging to, if you, if you listen to C-SPAN while doing experiments like I do, you'll hear legislators from John Cornyn of Texas, the, the Senate Majority Whip, to Dick Durbin, the Senate Minority Whip, highlight federally funded research as priorities. And this also holds true for the country. Uh, with a survey conducted last year indicating that almost 80% of adults questioned believe that science has made life easier for most people, and over 70% indicating that government investments in basic science research usually pay off. It's really hard to get anywhere near that many adults to agree on anything. So um, the fact that science and tax dollar-funded science in particular enjoys broad support from citizens and their representatives is really encouraging. So at some point, this podcast will definitely cover how it is exactly that funding for science is determined and passed by the Congress. But for now, suffice it to say that there are particular committees in the House and the Senate, which are just groups of representatives and senators from various states that are assigned to oversee various aspects of the government and country. Some of these committees are responsible for making sure like companies don't form monopolies. Uh, some are responsible for gathering and acting on intelligence for foreign affairs. And some of them are responsible for deciding how much funding science will get. And at the level of biomedical science, this is the kind of research aimed at discovering cures to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, addiction, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And so next year, the Congress is very likely to pass a full budget instead of a continuing resolution. And so without going into the differences between a regular appropriations bill and a continuing resolution, this means that things like biomedical science, NASA, and the Centers for Disease Control will begin to receive different amounts of funding. So I put together a map of the United States so folks can just click on their state and find out which of their legislators, who are responsible for representing their priorities in the Congress, are responsible for sculpting science policy on their behalf. So for a variety of reasons, the best way to communicate your priorities to your legislators is via phone call. Uh, Normal mail and email are fine, but multiple staffers for legislators have indicated that phone calls are really the best way to go. And so as a result, I included the phone numbers of one of the offices of legislators in each state. Oftentimes, legislators will have multiple district offices, um, and so there's just one. And you can find out where your legislator is at that one moment by asking somebody in the office you call. And so when it comes to senators, they represent everyone in their state. So if you're a voter in their state, you can call them to express your support for science funding. It gets a bit more nitty gritty in the House of Representatives. Uh, Each representative has a specific region within the state that they represent. And those districts, thanks to another potential topic called gerrymandering, (laughs) can look pretty darn strange in some cases. So if you click on the name of the representative, you can see if your home falls within their district. If it does, they represent you. And so this map that I'm talking about is at a website 
And the URL is anthropoid.science slash support dash science. So anthropoid is spelled A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-I-D. So that's anthropoid.science slash support science. Yeah, thank you. It's kind of a strange word, anthropoid. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the site has some guidance from a former staffer from uh, Utah Congressman Jason Chaffetz's office regarding like how to communicate with legislators' offices and staffers, because I know it's kind of an intimidating thing if you've never done that before. And so her guidance can be um, pretty helpful. But if you have any questions about communicating with your representatives at all, about anything, doesn't even have to do with science, feel free to contact us via email or Twitter, and you can find those various sources of communication in our show notes. Okay, so that brings us to our first topic for the day, and that is the 21st Century Cures Act. And so this is one of the biggest pieces of legislation that's been passed in the recent past, <laughs> uh, and it has, uh, it's had sweeping implications for how biomedical science is funded and regulated by the government. So this is a bill that evolved from an earlier bill introduced by Dick Durbin, a senator from Illinois and the minority whip in the Senate in 2015. And so at the time, it was a much, much simpler bill revolving around basically just adjusting appropriations or funding for agencies that fund basic academic research. So including a provision that uh, um, appropriations for each program, which included the NIH, National Institutes of Health, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, and DOD, Department of Defense Health Program, and the VA Medical and, Prost uh, uh, and Prosthetics Research Program, the provision stipulated that funding should remain at least that of 2015. And it would also exclude appropriations from this bill from sequestration, right? So basically, legislators couldn't really touch this as a source of cutting uh, government funding. And at least at the level of the NIH, the goal was to increase spending at the NIH by 5% real growth every year for 10 years. So Representatives Fred Upton and Diana DeGette then introduced the 21st Century Cures Act. With regards to funding, this act approached similar goals but with a different philosophy, selecting a more complex mechanism by which funding levels would be determined. Yeah, that, that's right. And so, And beyond that, there was a significant expansion of provisions. I mean, if you just compare the lengths of the bills, like the text of the bills, you can see a fairly obvious difference. Just the summary of the 21st Century Cures Act is considerably longer than the actual text of the American Cures Act. And so as a result, it became pretty controversial among certain members of Congress. One reason for that is that a major part of it was the f it attracted over 1,400 lobbyists from 400 companies, universities, and organizations who were both for and against the act. Um, and so Elizabeth Warren, the Democratic senator from Massachusetts, came out strongly against it, despite having had a bill she introduced along with uh, Senator Mike Enzi from Wyoming called the Genetic Research Privacy Protection Act, um, having been baked into the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, mostly, her reason was focused on the unusually high influence from special interests. Yeah, that that's right. And, and so ultimately, her criticisms stem from a concern over deregulation of oversight, right? That's kind of Elizabeth Warren's uh, uh, major, yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and, you know, so there's a deregulation of oversight relevant to the pharmaceutical industry, right? She didn't get too specific on the particular language when she was speaking on the floor of the Senate, but she refers to the potential consequences. And so one example might have been uh, what's been called refinements to the Sunshine Act's provisions, right? Which 
uh, were geared towards requiring that companies report payments uh, to physicians to a federal database that's built to track relationships basically between companies and physicians. And so um, before the 21st Century Cures Act was passed, uh, this language was, was eventually pulled by uh, Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa. Um, but so she also referred to uh, lowered standards, which new therapeutics must meet before being passed, before being approved, I should say. And so now I'm, I'm not a lawyer, right? <laughs> I'm being trained to be a scientist. But um, I think this stems from concerns about the language used for drug approvals. So rather than using the sort of what, what she calls the gold standard or what's broadly called the gold standard, randomized clinical uh, trials, uh, the new language includes real-world evidence, quote-unquote real-world evidence, which likely translates to a bit more elbow room available to the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Commissioner of the FDA. So another point of concern that a few people have brought up is Section 3033, which is titled Accelerated Approval for Regenerative Regenerative Advanced Therapies, which essentially lowers the evidentiary hurdles before bring, bringing products to market, which kind of um, goes back to what Ian was just saying. Right, right. And, and, and so and then just one last thing I'll highlight is Section 3037. And I'm sure everybody's avidly just going through the text and looking, oh, wait, 3037. Oh, God. OK, so uh, Section 3037 is titled uh, Healthcare Economic Information. And again, I'm not a lawyer, but the interpretations I've seen of this language imply that pharmaceutical companies would no longer have to conduct clinical trials for a drug that's already been approved for one application to be prescribed for a new condition. And so, I mean, you know, the, the potential consequences of these types of regulatory changes on like the landscape of incentives for the private sector to develop new therapeutics it, is an interesting point of conversation, right? There are like philosophical differences here that basically revolve around how quickly can a given therapeutic or a given treatment or drug or whatever be applied to a new condition, right? So right now, the standard is you need to conduct randomized clinical control, uh, clinical uh, trials to prove that, you know, your drug is safe, that it's effective, um, and you have to do it in a, a broad population, right? And so this regulatory change would enable, you know, a company like whatever, Pfizer, to use a drug that's already been approved for one condition to treat another condition. However, I, I found Dick Durbin's comments on the Senate floor regarding the 21st Century Cures Act to be maybe even more interesting. Um, so keep in mind, right, he was the, the person who sponsored the American Cures Act, right, which is sort of like the predecessor to the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, and so first he highlighted the things he likes about this new bill. And so he highlighted, for example, investments in opioid addiction or combating op opioid addiction. And uh, the act does appropriate a billion dollars in funding for opioid addiction prevention and treatment programs on top of $4.8 billion to the National Institutes of Health, the NIH. Um, but then he moves on... Um, to a discussion about what he disliked about the new bill. And so, so keep in mind, right, um, the concepts in the 21st Century Cures Act, at least some of them, ostensibly emerged from many of the concepts that were in his American Cures Act, right? And so first, he criticizes the source of funding for the appropriations in the act. And he highlights that it comes from programs focused on prevention, which have been used to fund things like the 317 vaccine program or 317 vaccine program that is built essentially to provide vaccines for children from low income families. And he argues that taking money away from prevention uh, and vaccine programs to invest in new drugs to treat diseases isn't rational because we can prevent these diseases in the first place with adequate vaccination. So he makes a similar argument regarding diabetes, where funds are being reallocated from programs that might be used through the Affordable Cares Act for prevention and bringing them to 
funding cures. Uh, he argues that if we could invest in getting people to change their lifestyles instead, we wouldn't have to allocate as many funds to developing those treatments and cures. Right, right. And and then he pivots to how we're approaching tobacco-associated diseases and disorders. And so so smoking, you know, I study addiction, and among the addictions I study is, uh, is nicotine addiction. Um, and so smoking is the leading preventable cause of disease and death in the United States. Uh, the CDC puts the figure at about one in every five deaths being uh, caused by smoking via things like heart attack, stroke, and various cancers, which is actually much higher than I expected. I, I just like recently looked this up. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so here he makes basically the same argument that we're siphoning funds from prevention to treatment and the development of therapeutics. Um, and so, you know, I think there are some solid points here. Um, but also, there are some that aren't like 100% accurate. And so, for example, it's true that vaccines can prevent many diseases, right? But at least today, they can prevent things like addiction, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, or, or like post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And so, so in other words, you know, while there are overlapping diseases here, it's inaccurate to suggest that we're simply taking money from prevention and allocating it directly to cures. And, and of course, that doesn't mean that doing anything like that is a prudent thing to do, right? And both are very important, uh, but we should be clear on this. And so similarly, when it comes to tobacco, and we could probably do a whole podcast episode on this particular topic, uh, I again think it's not quite so simple as either investing in prevention or treatment. And so just as an example, right, there are some folks who are so genetically predisposed to developing a nicotine addiction that basically no prevention strategies are going to be effective at eliminating the risk of tobacco-associated mortality and, and morbidity. And so also, while the cuts to uh, prevention and public health fund, right, which, which the president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, for example, Matthew Myers, who opposed the 21st Century Cures Act, identified as 30% over the next seven fiscal years are clearly not prudent from a public health perspective. I'm not aware of any provision that requires these funds to be limited to research into cures for tobacco-associated diseases specifically, right? So again, it's not that there's a decision to shift funds from tobacco use prevention to developing treatments for tobacco-associated diseases. So it might be more accurate to suggest that it represents a shift of priorities uh, from prevention more broadly to treatment and cure development rather than a one-to-one -one shift of funding for prevention of specific diseases to the treatments of those diseases. Right. It's, it's not like money is going from one hand directly to the other, right? It is sort of like a shifting of priorities, at least ostensibly. I don't know that there was a coherent plan right, to do this here, but it's just sort of how the appropriations uh, have landed. Um, and so Durbin also voiced his uh, disappointment at the reductions in overall funding included in the bill, right? And so initially, the funding was going to be uh, $9.3 billion over five years, right? And so assuming the general NIH, CDC, and whatnot budgets remained unchanged, this would have been a pretty significant chunk of funding. Uh, but ultimately, the bill allocated around half that amount and stretched it over 10 years, right? And so he closed his comments by voicing his concern that the passage of this bill may represent the end of the conversation about funding for biomedical science in general. And so this would be an important concern, because if you look at the trends of NIH appropriations or funding adjusted for inflation since 2003, it's essentially a downward line. And so sequestration in 2013 had a very dramatic effect on NIH funding. And the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act restores funding uh, levels to, to pre-sequestration levels, right? But that's still lower than it was in 2011 when adjusting for inflation. And also, I'm not aware of any provision that insulates this funding allocated in you know, the 21st Century Cures Act 
from subsequent appropriations negotiations, right? And so perhaps these increases can be counteracted by the subsequent Congress. And so despite all of this, you know, all these criticisms and all this complexity, the bill passed the Senate 94 to 5 after having passed the House with a nine, or, I'm sorry, 392 votes, right? And that's a pretty massive margin, particularly for uh, a vote these days. And so essentially all of the major science advocacy groups that I'm aware of have come out in support of the act in one, at one point or another. And so this includes like AAAS, Research America, the American Chemical Society, uh, the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, and then, you know, the Society for Neuroscience. Um, and though, you know, many of these, um, you know, supportive positions had reservations, right? And so that's why I think it's going to be important to keep this issue in mind as the next Congress begins debates um, or begins to debate what will be a new appropriations bill, right? Because the 21st Century Cures Act is just one very small aspect of overall support for biomedical science research. Okay, and so on to our next topic. And, and it's, it's actually pretty related, right? As we were saying uh, with regards to the 21st Century Cures Act, we, are, we can expect uh, reduced regulation over the pharmaceutical industry in general, but also antibiotics in particular. And so, Diana, do you want to take this? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, first of all, antibiotics are something that most people have heard of. People have also most likely taken them within their lifetime. And the general purpose is to kill bacteria or prevent them from reproducing. And they've been used for everything from strep throat to pneumonia. To prevent bacteria from reproducing, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. To prevent bacteria from reproducing. All right, got it, got it. Um, <laughs> But they already aren't and shouldn't be used as prolifically as they have been in the past. And you might ask why. Um, and that's because bacteria are getting resistant to the antibiotics that currently exist. And antibiotic discoveries aren't keeping pace because it's a long and expensive process to develop them. So how do bacteria become resistant in the first place? When someone develops a bacterial infection, um, which can involve bacteria that produce toxins that break down tissues or cause immunological responses that can be harmful, such as mucus, bacteria double themselves in a relatively short time frame to the tune of thousands, if not millions, of cells. Um, so antibiotics can disrupt the life cycle of bacteria by many means. Some actively kill the cells, others prevent the propagation of more cells or inhibit their ability to metabolize energy sources. But... When bacteria double, they're basically copying genetic code from the parent cells to the next generation. This is almost like telling stories from generation to generation or the game telephone. So little details get changed when you tell the story to the next person. And when this happens in genes, it's called mutating. And no mutation is exactly the same from bacteria to bacteria. Mutations sometimes have no noticeable effect. Sometimes it changes the way in a way that renders the antibiotic less effective. Uh, so maybe the cell wall is stronger and less likely to be damaged by that particular antibiotic. Or maybe it had a slight change in the way the metabolism functions, which is no longer as dependent on the step that's hindered that used to be hindered by antibiotics. So bacteria can also resist death by uh, antibiotics by producing biofilms, which is something that I study, um, which physically protect them by blocking antibiotics from reaching the cells, as well as creating enzymes to break down the antibiotics. And also, some bacteria can also can selectively pump the antibiotic agents out of themselves. With the thousands to millions of copies that are being made by the bacteria, there will be some mutants, even if not many, that are able to resist the effects of the antibiotics by one of those means I just discussed. So your infection might be cleared for the most part with the help of both the antibiotics and your own immune response. But even if a couple of these new resistant bacteria survive, they can begin to multiply all over again until there are enough to cause a significant infection again. 
You may not be as susceptible to this infection because your immune system has learned how to attack these in particular, but some of the bacteria will inevitably spread throughout the population and now be more resistant resistant to the type of antibiotic you used. That that whole process has always been kind of cool to me because it's sort of like, you know, evolution occurring within your own body. Absolutely. And you're, you're basically producing these superbugs and yes. you don't even know it. And it's just because you didn't follow your directions for how to take antibiotics. But well, we'll, we'll get, get to that. that. <laughs> Antibiotic resistance can be considered a tragedy of the commons. Um, in the short term, it is to your benefit to use them. You have an infection that it could quickly clear up and return you to full health. But the newly resistant bacteria are now spreading through the population, and the cheap, readily available antibiotic that you used is now less effective for other people. At some point, a doctor may have to prescribe a stronger antibiotic to combat the continually mutating and proliferating bacteria, which gives rise to what people are calling superbugs, as Ian just said. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the long run, over-reliance on antibiotics can make it harder to fight off infections. Yeah, and so for anybody that, that's not familiar, the, the tragedy of the commons is, is a concept, right, that describes what happens when multiple individuals are working with a shared resource. And they all act according to their own self-interest rather than the long-term priorities that benefit the group as a whole, uh, though perhaps less than acting independently would in the short term. Right. And so the idea was coined by an economist named uh, William Forster Lloyd in 1833. Right. So this concept has been around for a while. And he was focused on what happens when grazing of domestic animals was unregulated. And so given that antibiotics are like chronically overprescribed, this becomes a problem. But on top of that, the CDC suggests that up to 50 percent of the time, antibiotics aren't optimally prescribed. People don't take them as directed or they're overprescribed or whatever it might be. So, yeah, 50% is kind of a lot. So what can you do about it? So first of all, make sure what you have is a bacterial infection. So antibiotics are only antibacterial drugs, and they don't work on viral infections, which cause common colds, flu, and the more typical sore throat. Strep throat, on the other hand, is caused by bacteria, and this is something doctors can test with a throat swab. So I want to emphasize, don't pressure the doctor to prescribe it if they say it isn't necessary. They've um, trained for this, and they will tell you if you need antibiotics for your particular um, infection. I know. Doctors love taking advice from their patients. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then if you do have a bacterial infection, when your doctor says take the full course of the antibiotics, take the full course. So the earlier the mutant bacteria are exposed to the antibiotics, the more likely they are to still respond to some extent, and the timeline and doses are designed to kill as many as possible, even if your noticeable system symptoms are gone. So the earlier you stop taking the medication, the larger the population of bacteria that survives the first doses. Um, and that gives rise to the resistant uh, cells. On a more day-to-day basis, according to the FDA, antibacterial soap is not any more likely to prevent infections than if you use regular soap. And the antibacterial additive also contributes to antibiotic resistance. So I want to make it clear that this is not an issue with alcohol-based hand sanitizers, but those are kind of for different purposes. And generally speaking, regularly washing your hands with normal soap and water is sufficient and effective at preventing infections otherwise spread by contact. So where do antibiotics come from in the first place? Many of them are developed from natural sources, including competing bacteria. So other kinds of bacteria could be using them to prevent competition as well as fungi and molds. So antibiotic resistance is actually a natural phenomenon, like bacteria naturally, or or they naturally encounter things that are antibiotic compounds, and they naturally uh, learn to resist them through the mutation I discussed. But it's not on the scale that we see um, because of the widespread use of antibiotics. 
So the way it works is scientists first need to screen all those different species to see if their presence causes the death of a variety of infectious bacteria to see if it's going to be a broadly useful compound. But that's first just exposing them to the organism. So if they find an organism that seems to do this pretty well, they have to grow up a massive amount of that organism so that they can isolate the compounds produced by that little creature (laughs) that they believe to be responsible for killing the bacteria. So then if they get this far and isolate it, and the compound that they isolated is actually different than existing antibiotics, then they have to be tested clinically, as we discussed uh, a bit earlier, to make sure that it is effective and safe, after all, um, after which it needs to be approved by the FDA. Right. And so and this is kind of where differences in ideology come into play in, in terms of like regulatory ideology. And so obtaining regulatory approvals can be actually pretty challenging. And so between like 1983 and 2007, there was a major reduction in the number of new antibiotic approvals. And this has been attributed at least in part to a regulatory burden. And so clinical studies of antibiotics are actually kind of uniquely challenging because comparing the efficacy of an antibiotic to a placebo, for example, in a patient group is unethical for obvious reasons, right? You don't want a group of bacterially infected people just getting placebo when you know that they should be getting the standard of care antibiotics, right? And so the hurdle then becomes demonstrating what's called non-inferiority of new agents. And so in other words, new antibiotics need to be at least as effective, if not more, ideally more than the standard of care. And so demonstrating this translates to requiring considerably larger sample populations. And this amounts to more expensive clinical trials. And so broadly speaking, this makes antibiotic development a bit less attractive to the private sector, as some argue that the economic incentives don't quite favor R&D research and development in this case. And as we were talking about before, the 21st Century Cures Act does indeed provide an accelerated approval pathway for smaller clinical trials. Uh, in this case, it's called the Limited Population Antibiotic Development, uh, with, and this includes lowered hurdles to approval, right? But, you know, the argument against doing this is that there's a predictable cost to these policies, and several groups have identified that as an argument against reducing regulatory burdens, right? And so, you know, a less rigorous approval pathway will likely allow some problematic therapeutics to slip through the cracks, Right. And, you know, while a smaller study with fewer research participants may identify enough of an effect to recommend approval for a therapeutic, it may not be statistically powered to catch a less frequent but still significant toxic effect either in the general population or maybe among a certain subset of patients. And that subset just wasn't well enough represented in the smaller clinical trial that you're now able to conduct. Right. And so. This is a very difficult regulatory landscape to navigate, right? We're certainly looking at a looming and growing problem in the form of antimicrobial resistance. The WHO, the World Health Organization, suggests that almost half a million people globally, like today, develop, or yearly, (laughs) develop multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, for example. And the CDC estimates that at least 2 million illnesses in the U.S. annually are caused by antibiotic resistance. And so we're definitely going to need new pharmacological strategies, right, to combat bacterial infection. But the question we should be asking ourselves is whether we should lean more on the private or public sector to generate them. So given that new antibiotics, you know, an argument, right, is that, you know, given that new antibiotics won't be nearly as profitable until antimicrobial resistance becomes a problem and people are getting sick because we don't have good treatments for bacterial infection due to resistance, we may be playing a game of catch up right, if we rely too much on the private sector to generate these alternatives. 
So that said, antibiotic resistance has been made a broader policy objective of various organizations, including the World Health Organization, the CDC, and on a broader federal level here. And I'm going to list a couple of action plans that the various organizations have. So the WHO wants to improve awareness and understanding of antimicrobial resistance and to strengthen the knowledge through surveillance and research, uh, reduce the incidence of infection, and optimize the use of antimicrobial agents, and develop the economic case for sustainable investment that takes account of the needs of all countries and increased investment in new medicines, diagnostic tools, vaccines, and other interventions. Wow, that last one is <laughs> a pretty lofty goal. It's pretty broad. Absolutely. But uh, that's their job. It's great. Taking care of the whole world. <laughs> um, and so the CDC similarly wants to prevent infection, track and understand antibiotic-resistant strains, work on antibiotic stewardship in people and animals. So in this case, it's making sure it's used um, when necessary um, as opposed to as growth agents for animals. But this is also a controversial topic, yeah. um, which we won't uh, go further into right now. And uh, lastly, to develop new drugs and diagnostics. And um, so our federal government wants to prevent emergence and spread of antibiotic-resistant strains domestically and internationally and develop new drugs and diagnostics and also work on uh, stewardship of current and future antibiotics. And they actually have begun to address antibiotics in animals more seriously where food companies and stakeholders are committing to dealing with this. Um, so they are sometimes used for purposes other than treating infections, as I mentioned, but it also still contributes to antibiotic resistance, which can in the long run be bad, bad for ranchers, um, with the tragedy of the commons issue coming back into effect. Lastly, as a chemical engineer, I can't really resist the chance to talk briefly about how they are produced, how antibiotics are produced on an industrial scale. And this does apply to other drugs as well. But um, specifically, when biochemists isolate antibiotics on a lab scale, they use flasks and beakers and manageable container sizes. When you produce commercial amounts of a drug, you need tanks that hold tens of thousands of gallons of the organism that creates it. And you need to keep this tank clean and uncontaminated uncontaminated by other organisms, and they need to maintain the appropriate nutrients and environment to encourage the organisms to grow prolifically, such as an ideal temperature range. You don't want too much of a fluctuation, or it could change um, your yield or um, cause those organisms to die, basically, or change how much of the compound they produce. And then once you've grown sufficient amounts, you need to be able to separate that compound from the rest of the solution, including basically the waste of the organism. Um, and this can be done with a variety of physical and chemical separations depending on the property of the drugs. And all of these steps have to be done as efficiently as possible to keep that high yield. Um, and this also helps keep down the cost um, if they can make more of it from the amount they've got. And in the end, the isolated form of the antibiotic is often a powder. And in this state, it can be turned into either an IV drip or a cream or a pill or a capsule as needed for the most efficient delivery for um, to the infection site. And maybe in another podcast, I'll talk about the design of any everyday products such as that or personal care products, um, which is an involved chemical engineering process. Um, but with that, I guess we will wrap up. All right. That is the first episode of the Penn Science Policy Group podcast. And so um, given this past election, you know, we're probably going to see a lot of legislation passed. Um, and a lot of this legislation will almost certainly have implications for the regulation of how science is conducted in this country, how it's funded, and definitely how it indirectly or even directly affects 
people that aren't, you know, non-scientists. Um, and so we will be sure to do our best to um, keep up to date with that information. Um, and until next time, uh, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.